Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture Fizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. For the 56th episode of our podcast, I interviewed Eric Groves, co-founder and CEO at Alignable. Alignable is a venture-backed social network for small business owners. The company has over 2.5 million small businesses on their platform across almost 30,000 communities. Eric is also known for being a key part of the early team at Constant Contact that helped the company scale to an IPO. He joined when there were just 10 customers and $100 in revenue. Yes, you heard that right, just $100 in revenue. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like his early career progression from larger organizations to internet companies like AltaVista, where he actually met the brother of Steve Wozniak, the details behind Constant Contact's go-to-market strategy, plus the secret behind how they converted trial users to being paid customers at mind-numbing rates, all about Alignable and their mission to transform the small business economy one small step at a time, how they are building the Alignable network at a national scale all organically, where they're adding over 50,000 businesses a week with a zero acquisition cost, the one piece of advice he wishes he had when he was starting a company, plus so much more. Okay, quick side note. Is your company hiring? If yes, then you need to check out our biz pages. It is an employment branding solution that helps high growth tech companies connect with our highly targeted audience. Over 250 companies are leveraging our platform to make amazing hires. Send an email to premium at if you are interested in learning more. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Eric. Eric, thanks for joining us. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. So Eric, we're, I always like to talk about foundation years. So where'd you grow up? I actually grew up just outside of Boston in Lexington, Mass. Okay. And what, what did your parents do for work? I always think that's an interesting question. That is an interesting one. Uh, my mom was the head of the social work department at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Hmm. And my dad was a research physicist for MIT. Wow. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so what... Like, what was he working on? Uh, so he was actually growing the crystals that were used to enable fiber optic communication. So emitting and detecting light. And it was a gallium indium arsenic phosphide. And that's as far as I'm going to go. Wow. But <laughs> wow. Okay. So the, the dinner conversation, like that was wow. work today, dad. It's like, we're not going to get into that. It's a little yeah, above your head. Uh, no, he basically made it so you could put a lot of different conversations through one piece of fiber. Yeah, that's yeah. amazing. Amazing. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So cool. So um, I noticed you went to school in Iowa. So you grew up in the Boston area. How'd you end up uh, in the Midwest? Uh, I think there was a guidance counselor that must have been getting kickbacks or something from my high school <laughs> because there were... Uh, there were five of us from my Lexington High School class that went to Grinnell, which was, you know, probably 200 kids per stu- per class. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, my dad was originally from the Midwest and uh, went out and checked it out and um, really enjoyed the campus and uh, decided to give it a go. So ended up it's a it's a great liberal arts school in the middle of nowhere. Got it. Okay. And, and then like coming out of school, like, or, you know, even I guess, uh, liberal arts, you studied economics. What were you thinking if you had any idea professionally, like, this is what I'm think I'm going to do. It doesn't mean it always works out that way, but what were you thinking initially coming, uh, you know, professional, what you were going to do? Well, it was funny because I initially, I went into banking. So I went and worked at Citicorp uh, on the lending side and worked, went through their lending training program, 
uh, and then spent almost six plus years there as a lending officer, actually lending to law firms uh, and uh, all the partners at the law firms and all the crazy things that they would invest in. So it was a lot of fun. Uh, but it sort of gave me a great grounding in finance and a real good understanding sort of uh, for how all the financial markets work. And that uh, was a great first job out of, out of Grinnell, Iowa to go to Manhattan. It was, you know, a little different, but a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> and then what did you do after that? Uh, well, actually, while I was at uh, CityCorp, I uh, sort of caught the international bug. It was sort of right when the walls were coming down. Um, Eastern Bloc. And uh, one of my law firm clients was an entertainment law firm that was working with um, actually Paulina Poroshkova and Rick Okasik from the Cars. Yes, yes, uh, yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he was helping um, artists protect their rights to their property over in Czechoslovakia after the walls came down. Mm. And uh, so when I decided I wanted to go back to business school, I decided I wanted to build a program that would go and help work with small businesses in Prague uh, during the, the break between my two years of the business school. And so I built a whole business plan and shopped it around to different deans at business schools and convinced the dean at the University of Iowa to let me come there and build it. So uh, that was sort of my leap from CityCorps back to Iowa uh, to get my MBA, but uh, stop off in uh, Prague and all over the Czech Republic uh, between the two years. So it was a lot of fun. Yeah. And so what, what I guess through those years like what did you accomplish with that program that you that you built out um well it was fascinating because we were literally on the forefront of the changing of their economy and at the time uh, the czech republic had privatized all of its market and basically given a hundred dollars worth of chits to every citizen um in the czech republic and said you can invest it in any company you want and a lot of them just turned it back to their banks and said we don't know what to invest in you invest it for us and so um, they all of a sudden, these banks became investment managers. And believe it or not, they came to our class to learn how to figure out what to invest in. Uh, so it was absolutely fascinating because we started off with uh, looking at financial statements and, and they kind of looked at us, shook their head and said, yeah, nah, it's not going to work because it's all Russian accounting. Uh, and uh, so we kind of threw away the textbooks and went on field trips and just went and visited different businesses and, and looked at them and tried to break them down with the class and say, okay, here you have a, a manufacturing facility that's literally inside a castle making vacuum tubes for Russian radar systems that are no longer being used. Um, and um, <clears throat> a manager that's just pumping out vacuum tubes because he doesn't know what else to do. And literally took that situation, broke it down and realized that the best use for that property was to turn it into a hotel. Uh, so we connected them with a British company and they ended up turning that into a hotel. And we went through that all, over and over, uh, went to a gun manufacturer called Bruno Arms, uh, a screw company that was manufacturing screws down in Mieva uh, in the Slovak Republic. Um, and just, you know, kind of worked through trying to figure out, okay, what do you got to work with? What's the team's expertise? And how do we make a business out of this? So it was it was a blast. And the program went on for, I think, nine years after I left. Um, it kept going. And uh, it was sort of the formation of my desire to really work with small business owners because, um, you know, a lot of times you're working just off a passion and a desire to make change. And um, it, it just gets your uh, blood flowing. 
And I was definitely picking up on the connection there of yeah. uh, kind of Ford. What we're going to talk a lot about is helping out small business owners. So Absolutely. very interesting. So the connection with Rick Orkazik and Paulina Paraskova, yeah. were they still involved with what you're doing or was that? Oh, no, no. They were just the, the lawyer that convinced me that I should focus on the Czech Republic rather than going to like Budapest or something. Um, he represented those two. And they were at the time they were trying to get, I think it was Paulina's mother out of the Czech Republic. Mm-hmm. And he just looked at me and he said, you know, you really got to go to Prague. It's where it's all going to happen. They've tasted capitalism before. They know how it's going to work. Mm-hmm. It's the place to be. And so that's why we built the program. And it turned out that just north of Iowa City in Iowa, where I was for my MBA, is one of the largest Czech populations in Cedar Rapids mm-hmm. in the country. So all the stars aligned perfectly. And uh, we built that program and uh, had a ball. And what did you do after B school? Uh, went back to a large corporation enterprise again. I ended up going to uh, Southwestern Bell slash AT and T. Did mergers and acquisitions work there on the cellular side? So we were buying up all the cellular systems and trying to build what became Singular. Uh, and then did a lot of international work where we were bidding on cell licenses. And then after that, did that for a couple of years. And then after that, went to a company called MFS in Omaha mm-hmm. that was literally dropping the fiber optic networks in and around all the major metros around the globe, uh, sort of lighting up the infrastructure for what is now, you know, fiber optics and the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're building the thing that Al Gore built. <laughs> <laughs> um, we ended up getting uh, acquired by WorldCom. And so at that point, I, I jumped out and went over to a company called InfoUSA in Omaha. Uh, that was a database company that had a huge database of all of the businesses um, across the country. Uh, and did mergers and acquisitions there, worked for there for a while. Um, and then I, I guess I bought too many companies because the CEO said I had to go run one of the divisions after that. And that was kind of a, a change, uh, um, having to be responsible for an actual P&L. Uh, but did that for a while and then went to a startup company uh, called iAtlas in, um, in Ellicott City, Maryland, uh, which was a local search company. So basically... Uh, enabling local search using the data from InfoUSA and overlaying it over the, the grid of um, uh, a search index. And it was, um, I think it's still pretty cutting edge, even though it was like 20 years ago. Um, but it ended up getting acquired by AltaVista. And um, it's where actually I've met uh, Mark Wozniak, the, the little brother of Big Wozniak. Um, he was working- AltaVista? Yeah, he was working at Alta Vista in business development. Super really? nice guy, became lifetime friends. And, um, you know, he had a vision uh, for how Alta Vista could really own local search. And unfortunately, it didn't all play out the way that Alta Vista rolled out, but it was an awesome experience. Uh, ended up running enterprise sales for Alta Vista for a while and then made the big jump over to Constant Contact. Um, now, so Alta Vista, like they were like the Google first 1.0 edition. I mean, they were the dominant player. They were. I mean, they they had come out of digital. Um, It was a research project out of digital to index something very, very large to showcase some of their mainframe computers. And it turned out to be, you know, one of the most powerful uh, tools ever created. And um, and then along came Google and beat them at their own game. Mm -hmm. Uh, So uh, it was an awesome time to be there. it was uh, a great experience on how you have to keep innovating and stay ahead and know what you're really good at. 
Um, but uh, yeah, I really, I miss those big mountains that were on that logo. Well, when you were there, it was, there were a division of CMGI, which was yeah. again, the, the poster child of, of the internet from that era. Yeah. Um, well, you know, uh, Weatherall was um, one of the most incredible strategists I've ever met. And I was, mm -hmm. uh, you know, funny story. I was actually in an elevator with him. I don't know if you'd ever remember this, but uh, he looked at me and I you know, said, so what I said, what do you think is the future of search? And, he, you know, in his own kind of way, which was awesome. He just looked at me, he goes, you know, and this is 1989. He says, you know, we will have got there when I get off my jet, which was kind of funny mm -hmm. in Phoenix, Arizona. I'm driving down the road to go play golf. And my phone tells me that there's a discount on the golf balls that I like to use two exits down the road. <laughs> now, you think about that in the context of, you know, 1989, and you just realize how brilliant he was. Wait, this is 99, right? Yeah, 99. I'm sorry. Yeah, 99. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, how brilliant he was in sort of seeing the future and, and what was going on. And unfortunately, they weren't able to to really uh, capitalize on it, um, but he was way out ahead in his thinking. Yeah, uh, we did a fun story on Venture Fizz a couple of years ago that interviewed him and looked at all the companies that they had incubated, and basically all these companies they incubated are now standalone, you know, major brands and yeah. different categories. So it's absolutely kind of cool to look back. But uh, okay, so Constant Contact, obviously a great success story. So at what stage was that business at when you joined? It was huge. It was 10 customers and a hundred bucks in revenue. Are you serious? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. yeah. That early. Yes. Yeah. I was like the 20 something employee, but. Uh, were they even constant contact then? No, we were roving software. Roving. Yes. I knew there was a yeah. name before. Product okay. was constant contact, but we were roving software. So how did you get connected? Um, I got connected with Gail through a guy named Jim Savage, who was at Longworth Ventures, still is at Longworth. He was one of the um, board members uh, and investors in Constant Contact. And I had supposedly gone to have lunch with him just to catch up and chat. And I sat down at the table and he put out all of the executive summaries from his investments mm -hmm. and gave me a turkey sandwich. And he goes, here, Here's lunch. Read those. Tell me which one you like. And I read through them all and I picked up the roving software one. And I said, this is it. This thing's going to do something interesting. And he's like, all right, well, let's go meet Gail. And there, you know, and went down, met Gail, talked to her about what they're trying to do and mm -hmm. how I could possibly help. And, you know, the rest is history. I remember I was at a MIT Enterprise Forum event like, you know, a gazillion years ago. And yeah, uh, Gail and I think Randy was on stage too. They, they were like just pitching roving software. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. That, yeah. Randy was brilliant to figure that out. And Gail took it to the next level. And, you know, I kind of came in to sort of build out the whole go to market strategy. And I got a, a massive education on what it takes to really uh, win the hearts and minds of small businesses. Yeah. Cause I mean, uh, and there was no like term SaaS, right? And no. SMBs and, you know, we're going to charge, you know, subscription, you know, monthly. I mean, just all these things that I don't know if constant content, I mean, you would know it. I mean, because this was all new. So you had to figure this out on your own. It wasn't like you could figure out subscription payments from 10 other companies yeah. that were already doing it or. Yeah, no, I mean, at the time it was called ASP, right? Yeah. Application service provider. Yeah. Yeah. And SaaS really didn't exist as a business. And, uh, 
you know, the thing that I looked at Constant Contact and saw was that not only was it a solution to a huge pain point for small businesses in terms of how they brought their customers back, but it also was creating an enablement channel because we were emailing, we could actually communicate with all of these small businesses. So once we built up a large collection of them, we actually had a lot of different things that we could do with that huge network. And so that's, you know, what I was looking at, I was like, okay, I'd love to see things that have two or three potential paths to um, revenue or opportunity. And it was clear that that, that one was really in a place to take advantage because, you know, at the time they were sending direct mail uh, when they wanted to talk to a customer and it was cost them a buck 52 for each time they wanted to put something in front of their customers and email marketing came along and dropped that to a fraction of a penny. Um, so it was pretty revolutionary what we were doing um, in hindsight. You know, it's always easier looking back. <laughs> and, you know, email uh, in terms of the tools of, you know, the, the, te the templates and the whole like experience of a business jumping on, like, like that must have been very rudimentary at first compared to obviously what it is now. It, it was, you know, it's very similar uh, at this point. It's just gotten a lot better. Uh, but the same, the, the context is still the same. You need to have a list. Um, you need to collect a list of people who are really interested in what you do. And then it's all about staying top of, staying top of mind, right? You know, it's just this notion of I'm just going to flick you on the forehead and say, hey, remember me, um, and that will draw people back. Uh, you don't really have to sell to them because they already know what you bought, what you sell because they bought from you, obviously, before. And, um, you know, what we did was we spent a lot of time educating people on how to do email marketing well um, so that you were getting really effective flicks on the forehead and driving a lot of repeat business. Um, actually wrote a book on uh, the constant contact guide to email marketing, which is all just basic marketing uh, in the context of a digital age, which was a lot of fun. Um, we, uh, one of the taglines was uh, be brief, be bright, be gone. Uh, <laughs> Lots of fun. So the go-to-market strategy. So how did you build that out? And at what point did you hit this like inflection point of, okay, this is going to be a really big business that eventually goes public? Um, very slowly. Uh, mm -hmm. Death by a thousand paper cuts. You know, I think you, I remember the first year when I first got there, we had literally a football field drawing up on the wall of how we were going to get to our first hundred or a thousand customers, you know, and we kept marching, marking it off every week as we slowly worked our way towards it. Um, there were a number of things that we did at Constant Contact that at the time um, just put us right in the sweet spot. One thing was we got our pricing right. We did a flat rate. Uh, everybody else was charging per email sent. Um, that attracted a lot of nonprofits. Uh, because they wanted to know exactly how much they were going to spend and they mailed a lot. Uh, turned out that there were a lot of business owners on those nonprofits mailing lists, um, which caused us to really be in a great position in terms of growing the business uh, because, you know, viral was the best tool and they were all getting emails that said powered by constant contact at the bottom. Mm -hmm. um, so that, you know, that was one of the things that really helped us get going. Uh, and then we really started testing a bunch of stuff. I hired this guy, Devin Golden, um, who had been at Monster to run my telesales operation. And 
he just started calling people when they signed up. And at the time we were converting like 8% of our trials to paid. And we realized just by calling the business owners at the time, you know, this was pretty kind of revolutionary. Um, they, uh, if you just reached out and called them and told them there was a real person behind the website, mm-hmm. it, it drove the conversion rate from like 8% up to 30%. Wow. Which was huge. And, and so Devin did all this testing around it and then hired a team and then built out a whole telesales organization that was just phenomenal. And that, that jacked the conversion through the roof. And then I think that the icing on the cake um, was really education. And whether that education was delivered in person uh, through seminars that we ran or webinars that we did, uh, you know, when somebody came and got educated, the conversion rate actually went up from 30 to 50 percent. And so all of those things kind of working in concert um, made uh, the growth rate sort of just take off uh for constant contact and then when we got to scale we could really deploy channel um but you know channel conversations are really hard when you have a thousand customers and the people you're talking to have a hundred thousand or a million um you know they they tend to not want to talk to you uh but once we got to scale and we were you know a quarter of a million small businesses we could have really interesting conversations about partnering with people like intuit and uh, network solutions at the time um, to really uh, build out our reach and continue to expand. So they were promoting your product and obviously that was another channel of getting new subscribers. Absolutely, yeah. We sort of had this chart, this two by two of reach to small businesses versus influence with small businesses in terms of the decision-making process of buying. And you know, we would lay partners out on that grid and sort of say, you know, top right is Nirvana um, kind of hard to find people like that. Network Solutions was definitely in that quadrant. Um, and then we kind of worked our way around that two by two and built out programs in the lower right hand quadrant with, you know, like chambers and organizations that had not a lot of reach, but massive influence. And, you know, just kind of figured out, uh, created the landscape. And a lot of other companies are now using that same landscape because we went and trained them on how it all works. And, um, you know, it turns out to be a pretty effective way to, to get to the market. Was there a direct sales team too that were actually like cold calling small businesses or was it all the viral coefficient channel relationship type of? Not at the time I was there. Um, that changed after I left when they bought single platform. But the calling was all really calling people that signed up for a trial yeah. and just getting helping them um, get to the first aha moment. So they wanted to convert. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, most of the the outbound was um, really just calling people that had signed up. And what was it like? I mean, as far as um, like what types of challenges do you remember? Some of those, you know, even when you hit scale, that was just like, wow, lessons learned not to do that again. Or, you know, experiments that failed horribly or just, you know, those those legendary stories that you remember. Um, well, you know, I think one of the key stories was that there was never a silver bullet, right? There was never one thing that we turned on that was responsible for all of the success. It was literally block by block building the pieces and trying to figure out, I mean, we spent a lot of time looking at the funnel and, you know, a lot of times people will focus on the inside of a funnel 
and you see something go, oh, we got 30% conversion. Isn't that great? Well, the, the real game changers are when you focus on the 70% and you say, why didn't they convert? And what can we do to help them convert? Do we need to provide professional services? Do we need to bring the channel in further down the funnel to leverage them to help us convert? Because people don't want to do this piece. They want someone else to do it for them. So, you know, there was a lot of sort of tweaking um, that taught me a ton about how to really build uh, go-to-market strategies that worked um, versus, I mean, there's a lot of strategies out there for acquiring small businesses that don't work well. Um, and, are in, you know, that's one of the things that's made it very challenging to build applications for small businesses is the cost of acquisition is typically, you know, we thought we were pretty good in the $300 range um, per paying customer. But, you know, there's some people out there paying in the thousands to acquire a small business. And that means your economics are kind of turned upside down because it's really hard to deliver a product or service to a small business owner that they're going to be willing to pay thousands of dollars a month for um, just based on ROI. Uh, so, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's was a massive um, learning experience for me and one that I, uh, that really has helped us a ton uh, here at Alignable, I think. And, you know, Constant Contact went public in uh, 2007. So what was that process like? I mean, obviously you joined at such an early stage and working closely with Gail and finally getting to this point where it's like, wow, we actually did it and we're going to go public. And it's a milestone. It's not the end all be all, but still. Yeah, it was a great uh, experience, you know, fortunately or unfortunately for me, I was sort of focused on let's just keep our heads down and keep growing the business because <laughs> we go public and we don't keep doing that. We got other bigger problems. Uh, uh -huh. You know, Gail and Harp uh, really did a good job of taking um, and uh, Bob Nault uh, of doing all the, the dot in the I's and crossing the T's and doing the road show and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. I got involved with it again after we went public because I'd have to go do a bunch of the analyst briefings. Um, and those were always kind of not fun, but, you know, fun. Um, you know, you, you learn to say, well, I can't say that's not publicly available information. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'd repeat that time after time. Um, but, you know, from a from a company standpoint, it was great. It put a lot of resources uh, for us. We got out in a window that was, you know, barely open. Um, so that was awesome. And, um, you know, the company continued to do really well. Uh, for the remaining three years that I was there and then beyond that. And let's talk about what you're up to now. So you started a, a company called Alignable. So what's, what is Alignable? Uh, so, you know, we're just, we have a little simple thing that we're trying to do. We're just trying to transform the entire small business economy. Uh, <laughs> one small step at a time. Uh, but, you know, basically in short, what we are is a social network uh, where small business owners can go to connect and build trusted relationships with each other. And through those trusted relationships, they gain access to resources and referrals uh, that are really needed for small business success. And whether those are customer referrals, employee referrals, or I'm trying to figure out what POS system to put into my company, the way that they desire to make those decisions is to talk to another business owner that's had success with it. And so we basically enable that in a platform that is built just for them uh, to make that happen. Um, and, you know, we're growing like a weed and uh, really, uh, I think, tapping into that desire that they have to come out of isolation and really 
um, be able to interact with each other. And how'd you meet your co-founder, Venkat, who one of my fun facts about him is he's an Academy Award winner for developing 3D software for Star Wars Episode One. Yeah. So he's kind of a freak, man. The guy's so freaking smart. Um, yeah. So when he came to the U.S. from India, he was going to a little school called Stanford on the West Coast, getting his Ph.D. Mm-hmm. And was building software that sort of revolutionized the way that illustrations were drawn, 3D graphics. And it ended up getting picked up and used in Star Wars and a whole bunch of other movies. Um, so he got an Academy Award for that. Uh, the Academy is kind of cheap when it's technical merit. They don't actually give you a statue. So oh, really? Uh, yeah. Oh, so we I got him a one statue on his mantle at home. Yeah. <laughs> no. So I, I bought him one a couple of years after. I had it made up for him and we got it here in the office. So when you come visit, I'll show you. Uh, but in any case, um, you know, he's, his mind was always sort of focused on technology to change things dramatically it had been done one way for a really long time and needed to be disrupted. Mm-hmm. And so after getting his Academy Award, he was hanging out with a bunch of GSB students at Stanford, uh, one of whom was getting his braces fixed um, and having to go to the dentist or the orthodontist and get them tightened every two weeks. And he's like, this just stinks, man. There's got to be a better way. And Venkat looked at that statement and goes, huh, that's just a math problem. Your teeth are like this. You want them like that. You know, if we just do this using these these um, little inserts, um, we can change the way that works. And uh, lo and behold, they found it Invisalign um, and uh, did pretty well on that one. Yeah. So uh, crazy dude. And then he went off and did a couple other startups, um, primarily in the RFID space mm-hmm. uh, and got acquired by, it was Oat Systems, got acquired by Checkpoint here in Boston. And then he had punched out of his job there as global CTO um, and was kicking around working on a mobile app uh, to do push notifications. He'd been talking to his, I think his tennis coach and a bunch of other people in the same hometown I lived in actually, Acton, Mass. And um, he was talking to these business owners about, um, you know, mobile push notifications for near field, you know, push an ad to your customers as they're walking by the door type stuff. And one of the business owners pulled him aside after he talked to him a bunch and said, hey, that's really cool. I'm never going to buy it, but I know you're also talking to the guy that owns the liquor store across the street. Now, this guy had been there two years and he looked at Venkat and he said, can you introduce me to the guy across the street? (laughs) So Venkat literally put the phone down and said, what? What? He's like, why don't you just walk across the street? Ah, you know, it's it's just awkward. And I joined the Chamber of Commerce hoping the guy would show up and he never does. And and so literally that day we met a friend of ours, um, you know, the power of a network, um, a venture capital guy in Boston uh, sort of connected us up with each other and said, you guys should talk. Uh, so he walks in and he kind of looks at me and goes, OK, you've been in small business for like 20 years why won't the guy walk across the street? And it was like one of the bad, bad chicken jokes, right? Mm-hmm. And I said, it's actually pretty simple. He's like, no, nah, come on. I was like, what? Is it? Well, basically seven to 10 times a week, the average small business owner gets someone either walking in the door or calling them on the phone. And the conversation always starts off with, is the business owner available? Mm-hmm. And they want to sell them something. Right. right. 
and it drives them nuts. And so the last thing that that guy wants to do is literally walk across the street to the liquor store where he's probably shopped many times and say, is the business owner available? Right. <laughs> and so he came at it from that perspective. And I was coming at it from my time at Constant Contact. And I was sort of sitting here saying, OK, all these guys are saying, thanks for helping me bring my customers back. What are you going to do to help me find new customers? So I was coming at it from the perspective of, okay, so where do their best new customers come from? Turns out 87% say word of mouth referrals. Word of mouth referrals is words and mouths, right? Words are the kind things that you hope someone would say about you to somebody else. And mouths are simply the people that are willing to put their reputation on the line for you and your business. That's your network. Right. So I was sitting here going, OK, why? Well, how do these guys network? And he was coming at it from why the heck won't the guy cross the street to build a network? And the rest is history. We literally built a social platform that allows them to literally introduce themselves to the guy across the street and down the road and the gal um, you know, across the country that happens to be also be a cupcake store owner and really just interact and talk to each other. And what we find in these local communities is people will connect with each other online and say, hey, can I stop by and introduce myself? And the person on the other end be like, heck yeah, stop by anytime. Just tell them that Bob told you to come in. And sure enough, they walk in and they start talking and it opens up opportunities to grow their business. And so we're kind of an icebreaker, I guess. So building an online business is hard. And when you're doing an SMB where there's these local communities, so, you know, the constant contact, you're able to figure out, you know, the viral coefficient of getting other yep. people to like, but you're building a social network where other businesses have to get involved to create value for a social network. So how did you, you know, get that social network going? Like, how did you build um, it? It was really complex. We started in Acton where we both lived and I knew a ton of business owners and he knew a bunch of business owners. And we literally started old school. We would take two of them to breakfast at the bagel place. Mm -hmm. We would sit them down, give them a cup of coffee and a bagel. And then we would tell them something about the other business owner that they didn't know and vice versa. And then we just stepped back and watched. And we saw the spark ignite in these people when they found out something new about someone in their business that they could take advantage of in their own business. Like one, you know, the kitchen store was getting a 32% open rate on their emails and the wine store guy was getting in the 20s. And, you know, she actually had a larger list than he did, but he had 10 times the amount of foot traffic. And he's like, how the hell did you do that? And, you know, they, the, the conversation just, just went crazy. And so we realized we were onto something and we figured we needed to build a platform to make that happen. So we built that out um, and we literally launched it through a friend uh, who um, was the head of the Chamber of Commerce on Cape Cod. And she had us down there for an event. So we launched on Cape Cod and it spread around Cape Cod and then up into Boston. And I think January of 2014, we had roughly 300 some odd businesses um, and, uh, then a funny thing happened. We let them invite anybody they wanted. And what we would see was this, this, you know, 80% of their connections would be really within five miles of their business, but 20% could literally be all the way across the country. 
Mm. And so they would, you know, you'd see this sort of population of, of people signing up and then this shooting star that would fly out halfway across the country and land somewhere. It was like a, an ember, right? And it would go and it would land and some of them would fizzle out, but then another one would go out and then you'd see this, you know, fireworks sort of happen in that community. And it literally spread across the whole country in that way um, and continues to go in that way. So it sounds like it was a very like organic experience of growth, meaning business owners finding value, inviting other business owners. So the 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 analogy I'm going to give right now was um, so I, I, like I, I listened to a lot of Jason Calacanis and all his podcasts and this week at startups, and he was interviewing the founder of Nextdoor, yeah, and you know like another company that obviously has had extraordinary growth. And their growth was not through, you know, spending, you know, millions of dollars with Google and Facebook. It was through organic neighbors inviting other neighbors from their community because they were getting value. Absolutely. And I mean, we're literally adding over 50,000 businesses a week and it's zero cost of acquisition. That's amazing. Right? It's all viral. It's all yeah. businesses inviting other businesses that they want to connect with and, and build on the platform. That's awesome. Yeah. Now, how do you generate revenue like what's the what's the business model behind alignable um so we don't really dive deep into the revenue uh that we're building um but suffice to say you, you, the easiest thing to look at is is another network marketplace that's been built mm -hmm. and how they've monetized so if you compare us to linkedin for example linkedin had two components of their revenue a network component and a marketplace component the network component is generating revenue where both sides of the relationship exist and gain benefit on the platform. So business owners who want to sell to other business owners, mm -hmm. right, one way or another. Then the marketplace is once you're at scale and you have millions of businesses on the platform, there are people who literally want to sell products and services to that community we're willing to gain access to it. The interesting thing is that, you know, that's exactly what we're building out on our platform. Um, but our network marketplace is serving something that represents 50% of the US GDP. So that's a $9 trillion a year market just in the US. Mm -hmm. And what we're trying to build is the global platform that does all that. And right now we're just focused in North America. But if you believe that small business owners deserve a network because it's going to make them more efficient and you believe that if that network exists that they will gain competitive advantage that nine trillion dollar segment of the economy will become much more efficient more products and services will be built for them because it's easier to reach them then you kind of get the vision for where we're heading and how big it might be Mm -hmm. um, but the, the components of, of how we're building that out are really to think about it from a network standpoint first and then go to marketplace. Got it. And what, what is the size of the business now, like employees or communities or however? Um, so a little while back, we, we passed 2.5 million uh, businesses. Wow. We're, we're fastly approaching 3 million. Um, we've got roughly you know 30,000 communities across the country, uh, ranging in size from, you know, Austin, Texas with, you know, tens of thousands to a small little community, um, you know, in Kansas where they're all networking with each other. Um, it doesn't, you know, 
one of the things that Venkat was taught early on by a partner at Kleiner Perkins when he was pitching Invisalign, I think, was the guy looked at him and said, yeah, is it going to work in Ely, Nevada? And so that's kind of one of our catchphrases around here. It's like anybody can build a product or service that will work in New York, Boston, San Francisco. Mm-hmm. But um, and maybe this is because I went to school in Iowa. But, you know, if you can build it to work in Grinnell, Iowa and, and really make it effective there, then it'll work anywhere in the country. Mm-hmm. And so that's sort of been our mentality is let's build it so that we can help Grinnell, Iowa, small businesses be more successful. Very cool. Yeah. Well, something else that I found interesting about your background was you've been, uh, you know, on several boards. And I was having a conversation on our podcast with Adam Medros, who was, you know, chief product officer at TripAdvisor. Now he's president and COO of edX. Uh-huh. Um, and he served on the boards. And, um, you know, so how does one get involved with, uh, you know, board seats? Like, did you get approached when you were at Constant Contact or like, like how does... How do you actually yeah. work on the board of directors? Like, <laughs> um, so my board involvement really stemmed from a lot of what I learned in building out the channel strategy for Constant Contact. Mm-hmm. Um, it was very unique at the time. Uh, it was the place where most applications for small businesses were hitting the wall. Uh, you know, if you look at that crossing the chasm chart, it's really easy to get the innovators to do stuff, but it's getting to the early majority and the the uh, the, the the massive market in the middle that's proves really challenging and is very expensive. And you know, we had solved that problem pretty effectively, and I think that because of that, the word kind of got out, and I'd spoken at a bunch of different conferences and the. The venture guys um, that were on our board had other investments in small business. And so that was kind of how it branched out. Um, you know, Brian Halligan, when he was trying to figure out with Darmesh how to scale HubSpot, I think I don't even know if they had really gotten it going at the time. He came over and sat down with Gail and I, and we talked about, you know, the telesales model and, and all the components. And clearly, you know, they knocked it out of the park. So it was sort of like an early advisor there. Uh, but then went on and was on the boards of Big Commerce and Logo Works and you know other companies that were really just trying to figure out how to build a channel strategy uh, at scale for small business. So I think it comes out of you know solving a big problem and people finding out about it and wanting to know how you did it, um, and then having a lot of you know it's just building personal relationships with the CEOs and. Yeah, you know, basically said to all the ones that I've worked with, look, you know, I'm happy to serve on the board as long as you need me, as long as I'm adding value. Um, and then tell me when I'm not, and I'll be happy to ride off into the sunset. And uh, so I've done it a couple of times. Uh, I was on UTest board. Um, that's probably pretty much it. I'm also on the board of a local nonprofit uh, that's awesome called More Than Words um, that actually runs a used bookstore and teaches uh kids from uh, foster care and are court involved, really gives them their, their first uh, education in how to um, uh, work and run a business. Um, so, you know, those are all my sort of, that's sort of my passion now from a board sense. Well, I think it's, um, there's a lot of brain trust in Boston of experiences like you had, and that's a perfect test case of what I was aiming at here, mm-hmm. of people that understand different nuances of building a big, big business at scale that should be on boards of more companies in Boston. Because <laughs> the whole thing that Adam brought up is 
entrepreneurs would go to Stephen Coffer, right, the founder of TripAdvisor, and ask him to be on the board. And he's, he's only got so much bandwidth, right? right. You got to have more atoms on boards that are, he was in the trenches of thinking of A-B testing products and, you know, just like building the business. So uh, there needs to be more. I think yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, you know, building out that ecosystem is what makes longevity and in, uh, innovation really happen. California clearly has a leg up, but there are a lot of really, ex you know, awesome experienced uh, executives around Boston. I don't know why. I mean, maybe we're more conservative in nature that we don't uh, do more of that. Um, and, uh, you know, have the, the, the same kind of structure that you see on the West Coast. But, you know, it's, it's pretty much when any CEO in Boston reaches out and just wants to have a cup of coffee and talk, you know, more than happy to do it mm -hmm. um, because we all want to see Boston thrive as a, as a tech um, center. So you obviously joined Constant Contact at an early stage and saw great success. Um, then you went off to start your own company. And what's the one piece of advice you wish someone had given you upon starting your own company? Oh, my, my favorite uh, piece that Ben Cat gives me at least once a week is everything costs more. Everything takes longer. Everything <laughs> takes longer. Everything costs more. You know, he kind of mixes it up and goes one way or the other. But it's true, <laughs> right? I mean, it just it takes perseverance. Um, uh, the one of the questions that People always ask me, and they say, you know, is it, am I good to be an entrepreneur? What does it take? And I say, you know, when you were a kid, did you like playing shoots and ladders or Monopoly more? <laughs> and it's like, if you like playing Monopoly, right. you might want to go into finance. If you like shoots and ladders and we're okay, like almost winning and sliding all the way back down <laughs> to the bottom and getting up and doing it again, um, then you'll probably be okay as an entrepreneur. So there you go. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, how about fundraising? Like, what um, what advice would you give to you know first time founders upon you know fundraising? Oh boy, that's a that's a loaded question. It, you know, it depends. It's it really depends on what stage you're in, um, what experience you have. Uh, you know, there's a bunch of different frameworks that I use to kind of break down market opportunities and really try and understand pain points and. And, you know, how likely is it to get funded? But, you know, it's also it's a challenge because you, you have to find a venture capitalist that has a passion for what you're building. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, in Boston, we don't have the same depth that they have on the West Coast, but they're around. Um, you know, there's some really awesome early stage investors here. Uh, the guys at Boston Seed are terrific. Next View has been awesome to work with. And they really invest a ton in helping their early stage um, investments flourish. Um, so those, you know, it's just about building the network into those folks uh, that makes it possible. And then, um, you know, when we got to, to scale, we went to the West Coast and raised money from Mayfield um, out in Silicon Valley because we wanted to get uh, some DNA in the business that was really uh, from the West Coast, because that's where a lot of these social platforms have been built. And a lot of the introductions that they can give us, you just can't get from firms in Boston. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it really depends on, on what stage you're in and what you're looking for and, and you know, what expertise you have. What do you like to do outside of work? 
Um, well, my kids would laugh if uh, you know, I said I actually did anything outside of work other than work. But uh, most of it does revolve around friends and family. Uh, love to spend time. Uh, you know, there's nothing better than than hanging out, watching a sunset, talking uh, with friends, and having a good glass of wine. And mm-hmm. yeah, you know, at this point, my kids are a bit older; they're in 20 and 23, and it's fun to sort of listen in and and, and bring them into conversations and and see how they're sort of taking all of the stuff that they've observed over the years and and doing something crazy with it and having a lot of fun. So it, most of the stuff that I'm doing is revolving around them. That's awesome. I, I, my kids are a little bit younger, but, um, you know, 12 and 14. So I'm in the you know heat wow. of sports, you know, running around the yeah. events, which I love. I mean, it's so much fun. Do you coach them at all? You know, I did when they were younger. And then I got to the point where I realized I was not adding value anymore, <laughs> especially like coaching soccer. I'd never played the sport. So I was just like, you know, I got to step away because these kids know way more than I do. <laughs> yeah, it was funny. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll end with one great trick that uh, the head of mass soccer would uh, came and taught us all when we were soccer coaches. And the one thing he said is like, well, I said two things. One, a seven-year-old playing soccer is me, the ball, the goal. When they become eight, it's me, the ball, my best friend and the goal. Mm-hmm. And when they become nine, it's me, the ball, my best friend. Hey, where'd all these other kids come from? <laughs> so if you think if it's anything other than that, you're crazy. And then the other thing he said is if you really want to freak out all the other coaches and really get your kids to learn soccer, bring your chair to the game, put its back to the field, put down a tarp, have the kids that aren't on the field sit next to you and tell you what's going on and never watch the game. He said, if nothing else, your kids will understand the game and you'll freak the hell out of all the other parents. <laughs> and it works. I tried it. You tried it. <laughs> so the other coach is like, what is that? Guy's deal? You do it. <laughs> But it forced the kids to watch the game. And now it's like, hey, we just scored. Oh, really? Who scored? Joey. Is, is Susie in position? No, she's way over there. Oh, okay. All right. You guys go out there and have some fun. Um, That's an awesome, awesome story. Well, I assume uh, Alignable is uh, growing and hiring. We are growing and hiring. And, uh, you know, I think one of the best kept secrets in Boston is the North uh, uh, Northeastern co-op program oh, uh, at any given point in time we've got five six seven of those folks here on, mm-hmm. on site um don't tell any of the other businesses in town about it because it's that good mm-hmm. uh but uh no not yeah they, they've been phenomenal leverage for the business and we love having them here um but then we're also hiring uh non-stop in terms of uh really talented people so yeah bring them our way well, you can certainly find the opportunities for Alignable on their biz page on VentureFizz. Well, Eric, thanks so much for sharing you know, the background story and the great success of Constant Contact and obviously looking forward to uh, seeing what happens next with Alignable. Thanks so much. It was fun to be on the show and uh, appreciate you giving us the opportunity. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.